joy to have Dr. Carson here, and I think that the uh, world of academia would agree with what Dr. Johnson said, that he probably is one of the best New Testament scholars around today. And many of us have read just about everything he's written. We've listened to a lot of his tapes. I had the joy of knowing him when I was in Canada, and uh, just briefly, his folks, he came from a very godly home. I will never forget in Texas when he told us that he did not know that he was poor until he went to college. That's the first time he ever realized he was poor because of the kind of home out of which he came. And we're grateful that he's here tonight. He's gonna to speak three messages and afterwards we'll have one hymn while they get things set up and then there will be a short discussion uh, on the message that he covers this evening. Dr. Carson. What time do I have to? You should be finished about quarter after nine or 9.30 as you feel what's going on, and then we'll have about 50 minutes. I would like to know if John Riesinger learned his gambling habits from John Bunyan. I would like to uh, draw your attention this evening to the best book in the world. <clears throat> you may have many criticisms of the preacher, but I guarantee you will have few criticisms of the text, Romans 3. Now, I should perhaps warn you that the topic assigned me for this conference is slightly deceptive. I do not intend in the course of three addresses to speak comprehensively on a theology of law in Paul. Uh, partly, the subject is too complex in my judgment for adequate treatment in that uh, set of parameters. Partly also because I was specifically asked to spend uh, at least one or two of the three sessions in describing and responding to the axis of interpretations that have sprung from E.P. Sanders, James Dunn, and Tom Wright, um, which is not something I particularly want to do, to be quite frank. I would rather expound scripture, um, yet it needs to be done. Uh, so what I intend to do this evening is to expound a text and tomorrow, in the first session, I shall outline their views because they are subtle. They are not easily understood, and it is important to get them uh, as accurately as possible. And then in the second session, I shall try to respond to them uh, and at the same time give some passing um, exegeses of a variety of texts that are important in that debate. This evening, however, I want to direct your attention primarily to Romans 3, 21 to the end of the chapter. I shall take in a little material both before and after, but I would like to begin by reading this passage, Romans 3, 21 to 31. <clears throat> Hear then the word of God. 
But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify, nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. We come in this text to what Martin Luther called the chief point and the very central place of the epistle to the Romans and of the whole Bible. Here we find one of the most stunning expositions of the cross in all of Holy Scripture. I shall proceed in three steps. First, we are condemned apart from the cross of Christ. We are condemned apart from the cross of Christ. That is, in fact, the burden of the entire first section of Romans from 1.18 to 3.20. I do not have time to expound that text in detail. I scarcely have time to read it. But I want to draw your attention to two or three elements in this sweeping condemnation. In 1.18, the wrath of God is presented against all ungodliness. By the time you get to chapter 2, that wrath is also said to be directed against sinners. Thus, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. The standard evangelical cliche that God hates the sin but loves the sinner, has one small modicum of truth, but it is fundamentally mistaken. The small modicum of truth, of course, is that there is a sense in which God's stance towards sin is implacably wrathful. His stance towards sinners is not implacably wrathful. It is full of wrath, do not misunderstand. But he is also the God that calls out to sinners Turn, turn, why will you die? The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
Having said that, however, it is important to understand that God's wrath is directed not only against the sin, but against the sinner. Fourteen times in the first 50 Psalms alone, the scriptures insist that God hates sinners or liars or his wrath is against particular evildoers or the like. This is a dark passage. Thus, when five times from verse 24 on, we are told that God gave them over to something, this is not the dispassionate removal of a deistic God so that matters take their course. There is a sense in which matters take their course. Sin breeds terrible catastrophe. It breeds decay and judgment. But it is not as if God is letting matters take their course precisely in the sense that he stands removed from those matters or that he now steps back from those matters. His letting things take their course is precisely a judicial function. That is the display of God's wrath both against sin and against the sinner. Another passage to which I wish to draw your attention in these first three chapters is verse 12 to 16 of chapter 2. This passage has been understood in six or seven different ways. Be of good cheer, I shall not outline them all. <laughs> but I want to warn you against one particular way of taking it that is becoming increasingly prevalent and in my view is profoundly mistaken. Verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now the general thrust of this paragraph everyone agrees with. That is to say, the text insists that those with the law, Jews, those who are informed by Torah, will be judged by that standard by which they are informed. Those without it will be judged not by that standard of which they have not been informed, but by the extent to which that standard has surfaced in them, whether by the stamp of God upon them, the imago dei, or in any case by what they display of, of their knowledge of, of um, of right and wrong by their own actions. The, the tricky bit that some people have difficulty with, it seems to me, is at the end especially of verse 15. Their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Some have argued that this means that there are some pagans who do not have the law of God who then will discover that their consciences defend them on the last day because they have lived up to the moral law of God, whereas others, their consciences accuse them. But that really is not Paul's point. Paul is not saying that these two clauses belong to distinguishable groups. Rather, both clauses belong to one group. That is to say, sometimes the consciences of pagans justify them, and sometimes the consciences of pagans condemn them. 
No one is quite as bad as he or she could be. Even Hitler loved his dog. He could have been a little worse. He could have kicked it. One can always be a little more evil. And in that framework, then, the, the argument here is, that not, is, is not that we are all as bad as we could be, nor is it that some are good and some are bad. It is that the fact that we can distinguish between good and bad and sometimes have our consciences approving us and sometimes have our consciences condemning us is already demonstration that God has left us without excuse. For no matter what degree of standard we have, we fail it and therefore we will stand condemned on the last day. Now, some argue that the only obedience to the law Paul combats regularly in Romans and Galatians has to do with Jewish identity markers. Now, I am anticipating what I will deal with tomorrow in connection with Jimmy Dunn, but I will make a comment in passing now. He points out that in Galatians, for example, the heart of the debate, the sharp end, has to do with uh, food laws. Thus, the conflict between Peter and Paul turns in part on a food law in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, or on circumcision. These are identity markers. That is, they are markers that identify the people of God as Jews. And, Dunn goes so far as to argue, his understanding, Paul's understanding of works of the law has much more to do with that sort of identity marker, a social stamp for who is and who is not the people of God, than it has to do with obeying the law or failing to obey the law in a sweeping moral sense. But the, it is very difficult to read 1.18 to 3.20 in that frame. It is very difficult. Chapter 2 speaks repeatedly of Jewish transgression of the law. Having it or intending to obey it is not enough. And then when one reads the catena of all that is ugly in chapter 3, verses 10 and following, you're not dealing with circumcision or eating food. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their laws, before their eyes, and not one mention of kosher food. Now, it is very important to understand that. We shall return to this point tomorrow. Moreover, it is absolutely essential that Christians have a firm grasp of what the problem is if they're to agree on what the solution is. Now, that lies at the heart of one of my objections to the new Tom Wright, Jimmy Dunn axis. If we cannot agree on what the problem is, there's no way we're going to get the solution to agreement. If we do not agree on what the problem is, we won't get the gospel right. Now, we may fully agree that in talking to alienated people or street people or lonely people or whatever, we may start with where they are, where they are experiencing life as a way into discussion. But unless we move from that to a biblical analysis of what the human dilemma is, we cannot possibly get to a biblical analysis of what the solution is. And thus we always end up with a distorted gospel. That is an infallible principle. The two stand or fall together. The fact of the matter is we are lost 
apart from the cross of Christ. But that still brings us to the last two verses of this long section from 118 to 320. 319 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. That is to say, the Mosaic covenant was promulgated amongst those who were bound by that covenant. And it did so, in fact, so that every mouth may be silenced. But insofar then, as we have seen in chapter 2, that the law of God is reflected amongst these pagans, there is an extension that is made by the apostle himself. The whole world is held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now here I would like to pause for a moment to draw your attention to two other passages of Scripture, one that is Pauline and one that is non-Pauline. The Pauline one is Galatians 3, a passage to which I will return again tomorrow. There Paul asks, after he establishes the, prime, the, the primordiality of the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise to Abraham, he asks why then was Torah, why was the law added now, there are many reasons given in the New Testament why God gave the law. But there, too, the primary reason is to make sin clearly transgression. It is to compound iniquity, to show how ugly and black our rebellion is. And that is the sort of thing, put in a slightly different context, that surfaces here. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Well, of course not. This whole catena of texts says that there is no one who is righteous and no one understands and no one who seeks God. Well, why then the law? Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. Now, I shall return to that passage tomorrow. But the other passage to think about in this respect is from the epistle to the Hebrews. For there is a sense in which the old covenant did deal with sin, but it didn't deal finally with it or effectively. It dealt with sin typologically. Hebrews chapter 9 in particular. In verses 6 and following of Hebrews chapter 9, we're told that the very repetition of Yom Kippur, of the Day of Atonement, on which the high priest entered with the blood of bull and goat into the most holy place, there to offer the blood before the hilasterion, the mercy seat, which were then crops up in, Gal in uh, Romans 3, both for his own sins and for the sins of the people, uh, the very repetition of this from year to year, from year to year, from year to year, proved that the sacrifices were not finally effective. More importantly, by the time you get down to verse 10, and again verse 13, it becomes painfully obvious that the author of the Hebrews has never thought, not for one moment, that the blood of bulls and goats was in itself meretricious, was in itself effective. Now for a start, what, um, what bull? ever offered itself. The, the, the blood of bulls and goats can't avail anything in that sense. 
in the deepest sense, that little goat is not even a voluntary sacrifice. There is a sense in which the people are still paying for it because it's somebody's goat. Do you see? It can't be effective either intrinsically or in the very nature of the case. And the author of the epistle to the Hebrews spells that out in profound detail and then contrasts Christ's death with their death. Christ's death was not something they offered. Moreover, when he offered himself, it was a moral sacrifice of infinite significance precisely because of verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. If I understand this strange expression through the eternal Spirit, the idea is not in this context through the Spirit of God or the like, referring to a distinct and well-understood third person of the Trinity, but rather this was through Christ's own act of will. That goat didn't offer itself through the Spirit. It was dragged there, and when it saw the knife, it was not pleased. But Christ offered himself through the eternal Spirit, his own eternal being offering himself up in self-conscious obedience to God's decree. That is what makes his sacrifice significant. And in that framework, therefore, all of the sacrifices of bulls and goats that led up to that act could not prove effective either on the ground of their repetition or on the ground of their intrinsic nature. They prove fruitless both ways. Now, both of those themes, in one fashion or another, I shall argue, show up in Romans 3, 21 and following. But that background, I thought, was worth putting in so that you will see that in certain respects, Romans 3 is not a peculiar passage. It is a passage that summarizes a great deal of New Testament truth in one place, but all of its components you can find in other places, which is an important thing to see. So that is my first point. We are lost apart from the cross of Christ. Second, we are justified because of the cross of Christ. We are justified because of the cross of Christ. Chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Now, the controlling expression in this paragraph is variously rendered the righteousness of God or the justice of God the word shows up four times. The noun, righteousness, justification, justice, variously rendered, shows up four times in these six verses. And then the verb to justify, which is used in this epistle for the first time, shows up twice. And the adjective just or righteous shows up once. It is the dominant theme of this paragraph. Part of the problem is that we do not have a single word that latches on to this same root and captures the various overtones of this word in its various usages. We have to use different words. We really don't have much choice. But when you read this in the original, you are dealing with the same notion. For example, in English, when we speak of righteousness, we tend to mean individual righteousness. 
when we speak of justice, we tend to mean public justice. That is, justice is public righteousness and righteousness is private justice. That is our dominant usage in Western culture. But then, because God is private, public, righteous, just, He is just and righteous in every conceivable way, do you see? And keeps His own promises, is, is so just that He provides a way in line with His covenantal promises to declare us just. The same word can lap over into that arena as well. We call it justification. The verb to justify in Paul, the verb dikaiao, as far as I can see, without exception, must always be rendered to justify and always with a forensic power. I will come back to that one a bit more tomorrow as well. Whereas the noun, sometimes righteousness, sometimes justice, sometimes justification, has to be rendered in English words slightly differently from location to location. That is... Um, by way of prolegomenon to this passage. I think we will get at the heart of this paragraph by reflecting on four elements. Number one, the revelation of God's righteousness and its relation to the Old Testament. The revelation of God's righteousness and its relation to the Old Testament. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now this now is not in this context a logical now. It is a temporal now. Now with the coming of Christ. Now at the end of the ages. But even so, what is the precise flavor of the contrast? I hope many of you have purchased the commentary by my colleague, Dr. Douglas Moo, his commentary on Romans, which in my view is very excellent indeed. And on this paragraph, I think he is very good, except I think he's wrong here. <laughs> he says that this now is a contrast between the era of the wrath of God and the era now of the grace of God. And I can understand why he argues that. Because after all, we have had 118 to 320, two solid chapters of nothing but the wrath of God. But now, a certain righteousness has been disclosed. Yet I still think that is profoundly mistaken. It's mistaken, I think, on two grounds. One, in a larger biblical theological framework, and one because of this passage at hand. The larger biblical theological framework I may cast in this way. There is a fair bit of evangelical sentiment that in the Old Testament you have law and judgment and wrath. In the New Testament you get uh, grace and forbearance and turning the other cheek. A and there is a profound sense in which that entire analysis could not be more mistaken. One of the reasons why the, the analysis has any force whatsoever, it seems to me, is because the wrath that is talked about in the New Testament is far more commonly eschatological wrath than in the Old Testament. And we are such a here and now generation that what gives us the willies is not talk about hell, but talk about famine or plague or war. But that's our blindness, not the New Testament's blindness. 
The New Testament figure who speaks most eloquently and most often about hell is, at the end of the day, Jesus. And after you have finished reading through the last half of Revelation 14 with the depiction of evil people thrown into the winepress of God's wrath with either God or the angels, it's not quite clear, stomping down on these people until their blood gushes out for miles. It's pretty hard to believe that the God of the New Testament is a softer, kindler, gentler God. <laughs> I, I mean nothing funny by that at all. The truth of the matter is that the picture of God's wrath from the Old Covenant to the New is ratcheted up. And the picture of God's grace from the old to the new is ratcheted up. It's the same God. And as you move through the sweep of redemptive history, then you see more clearly the full scope and sweep of God's wrath until you come to the second death. And as you move through redemptive history, you see more fully and completely the sweep of God's grace, which issues climactically in the cross and in the new heaven and the new earth that it purchases for those, in fact, who come by God's grace to place their faith in Him. So on that ground alone, which is a larger biblical theological analysis, I'm a little nervous about Doug Moo's analysis of the now here. But there's more than that. But now a righteousness from God apart from law, now what that modifies, we'll worry about in a moment, has been made known, and this righteousness came through Jesus Christ. What is at issue then is not primarily a contrast between wrath and grace as between the law covenant and what has come by Jesus Christ. Moreover, it will not do with many commentators, not least those of Reformed stance, but also Bartians like Cranfield and many others to take law here in the phrase apart from law to refer to legalism. They read, but now a righteousness from God apart from legalism has been made known. And the reason they say that is because it is impossible in their view to conceive that God would disclose a righteousness apart from law which is in fact a manifestation of God's righteousness but they are mistaken. Because the issue is not whether or not the law is partially unrighteous. That's not the issue at all. Rather, the issue is that this righteousness, this justification, this solution to our need, this righteousness that we must have, whether it has been disclosed in the law or in Christ Jesus. And here Paul wins his way very carefully. On the one hand, he says, a righteousness from God has been made known apart from law, if I understand the Greek correctly. Apart from law does not modify righteousness, but modifies made known. It has been made known apart from law. That is to say, it has come to us apart from the law covenant. On the other hand, it does not follow that it is utterly independent of the law covenant. It is precisely that to which the law and the prophets 
testify. That is, the law and the prophets bear witness to this dikaiosunetheu, this righteousness from God, which has now been disclosed in the coming of Christ. In other words, these are not logical categories of contrast. They are covenantal salvation historical categories of contrast. The first thing to see, then, is that this righteousness of God has a certain relationship to the Old Testament. The Old Testament predicts it. It bears witness to it. Now, that pattern, I would want to argue, is common in Scripture. We'll come to it again in Paul tomorrow. But it harks back, if I understand Matthew 5 aright, to the teaching of Jesus. Jesus himself insists that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Now, because we look at abolish and want the antonym of that, many have argued that the opposite of abolish is maintain, so we interpret fulfill to be maintain. Or perhaps we'll ratchet it up and say it means to intensify it or the like. But the verb to fulfill, though it can have several shades of meaning in the New Testament, without exception in Matthew, always refers to that which fulfills something predicted. That is, it is, in the, it is on the axis of prophecy and fulfillment of prophecy. The argument is that Christ has not come to abolish the law, as if by his coming his primary concern is to get rid of the law covenant. His primary concern, both in his teaching and in all of the execution of his messianic responsibilities, he came rather to be that to which the law and the prophets bore witness prophetically. That is to say, they, they prophesied. Moreover, that sort of notion is repeated in Matthew 11, where we're told that all of the law and the prophets prophesied until the coming of John the Baptist. Not that the law legislated and the prophets prophesied. The law and the prophets prophesied. They bore witness to the future until the coming of John the Baptist. So also here, this righteousness from God has come apart from the law covenant. It is not under the frame of the old covenant. Any more than the sacrifice of Christ in Hebrews is under the frame of the sacrifice of a bull and a goat. But nevertheless, those things did prophesy to the coming of Christ. They bear witness to the coming of Christ and His righteousness at many, many levels, only a few of which we'll explore in these lectures. That, then, is the first element in this paragraph, the revelation of God's righteousness and its relationship to the Old Testament. Second, the availability of God's righteousness to all human beings without racial distinction, but on condition of faith. That's a mouthful, so let me repeat it. The availability of God's righteousness to all human beings without racial distinction, but on condition of faith. Thus we read, verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, in the light of the argument that has preceded this passage, chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul insists that Jew and Gentile alike are condemned, that is what he is focusing on here by this little clause, there is no difference. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. 
God's grace is not being mediated primarily through the axis of the Old Covenant, which was bound up with one racial group. Now there is a broader horizon. There is no racial distinction. All are lost, and in principle, God's grace now operates without this racial distinction that was bound up with, the, with this very structure of the Old Covenant. On the other hand, it is not for all indiscriminately. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, this passage has been interpreted increasingly in the last 25 years in a way with which many of us were not originally familiar. The question is what to make of the expression, faith of Jesus Christ. Is this Jesus Christ's faithfulness so that Jesus is the subject of the faith? Or is Jesus the object of the faith, faith in Jesus Christ, which is the, the traditional understanding? Now, you can make gospel sense out of both of those interpretations, in all fairness, because there is a sense in which our gospel turns on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, thus uh, John's gospel, the epistle of the Hebrews, Paul in, in, in Philippians 2, all of them stress the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to the command and commission of His Father. And thus, there is a sense in which the gospel comes to us owing to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, in all fairness, I don't think that's what it means at all. It would take too long to go through this debate. It is a long and complex one now. But I am persuaded that here Jesus Christ is the object of faith. Throughout 321 to 425, all of chapters 3 and 4 in effect, pistis, the word for faith, regularly refers to the faith of the people of God. And the object of it then is Christ. The difficulty with that interpretation that the other side presents is that this seems to have a little this seems to generate a little repetition in 22a. This righteousness from God, we're told, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And of course, in the original, it's the same root. It's a bit like saying something like, this faith in Jesus Christ come to all who have faith. So they say it's a bit thick, isn't it? So wouldn't it be better to take the first faith as not, as not our faith, but the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which the Greek allows? But what that overlooks, it seems to me, is um, the importance of the word all. The, the, the thrust is, is, is like this. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who have faith, that is, in Jesus Christ. The point is, you see, is that it links precisely with this removal of racial barriers. It is not just to Jews, nor is it to, to the elite of the elect. It is to all who have faith in Jesus Christ without exception. Do you see? But it is to those who have faith in Jesus Christ and only to them. So the second element then in this passage is this, the availability of God's righteousness to all human beings without racial distinction but on condition of faith. Third, the source of God's righteousness in the gracious provision of Christ Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. 
the source of God's righteousness in the gracious provision of Christ Jesus as the propitiation for our sins, verses 24 and 25a. We read, picking up again from verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as now, the NIV has a sacrifice of atonement. We'll come to that expression in a moment. Through faith in His blood. Now, every phrase here has been disputed for pages and pages and pages in all of the longer commentaries. And let me simply outline to you the main thought, it seems to me, of where this text goes. We are justified freely by His grace. This is the first use of the verb. As far as I can see, without exception in Paul, it always refers to a forensic act, a legal act, by which God declares the guilty just. I will return to that one tomorrow, but I will say a little more about it in a few moments. This is not a legal fiction, which is something we are regularly accused of maintaining, especially from those of the Catholic camp. This is not a legal fiction, but a legal reality of utmost importance. To discern its significance, however, we need to think a little bit more about two or three items in the passage. We are told that this justification is a matter of grace on God's side. Freely given us, we're told, by His grace verse 24. So it can only be a matter of faith on our side. In Paul's thought, those two themes are linked ineffably together. This was accomplished, we are told, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, which is a metaphor bound up with liberation from slavery by the payment of price. And then that that redemption is unpacked in verse 25. This text unpacks how God effected this liberation by Christ. We are told that God presented Christ. He publicly displayed Him as the hilasterion, the propitiation. I think the way the modifier should be read, although I admit this is disputed, God presented Him as the propitiation in His blood through faith, that is, received by faith. I think that is what is meant, although I won't go to the post for it. Now let us think a bit more about this term propitiation. Some of you who have give, given this matter some intense reading will know that in this century, the rendering propitiation was challenged in the early 1930s by C.H. Dodd. C.H. Dodd was a Welshman who came through, in fact, uh, the Welsh Revival and made profession of faith in that framework, but his academic studies moved him off uh, further and further to the left. He was one of those men who was the last of the old-time liberals who could write a great deal of pious theology after destroying the foundations. Uh, he was once heard in the translation of this passage for the NEB to make some sneering comment about uh, atonement theology of this sort. 
which earned from him the famous uh, limerick. There was a professor called Dodd, whose name was exceedingly odd. He spelt, if you please, his name with three Ds, while one is sufficient for God. Um, which was no sort of theological rebuttal, but did a great deal of good at the time. <laughs> Nevertheless, the point that he raised in his article, subsequently published in his book, 1934, The Bible and the Greeks, was an important one that we need to think about. He said that in pagan circles, in propitiation, the idea is for human beings to offer sacrifices to gods that are either bad-tempered or whimsical. If you're going on a sea trip, then you choose your god, Neptune, and then you offer sacrifices to this god to make this god propitious, that is favorable to you. Thus it is an act of propitiation. You wish to make the god favorable to you over this domain of your life. If you're going to give a lecture, then you offer a, a, a sacrifice to the god Hermes, who is the god of, of communication. And, um, and, and you hope then that you will make this god propitious towards you, favorable towards you. Thus, in pagan thought, human beings offer a propitiating sacrifice to God or to the gods in order to make the gods favorable to you. But, he says, how can you possibly apply that to the Christian understanding of things? God is so favorable to us that he sends his son in the first place. God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's what the text says. So how can you imagine, therefore, that God is implacably against us, so wrathful uh, that, that we have to offer a sacrifice, or that Christ has to offer a sacrifice? Shall we assume that, that God is implacably against us, God the Father, and Christ is, is wonderfully loving and sweet and is for us, he says? But God so loved his Son in the first place that he gave his Son. So how can we speak of of placating the wrath of God or, or propitiating God when God is already so propitious toward us in the first place that he gives us his son. Therefore, the sacrifice on the cross must not be thought of, he argues, in terms of propitiation, but in terms of expiation. Propitiation has as its object God. You want to make God propitious, favorable. Expiation has as its object sin. Expiation cancels sin. It does away with sin. And in some sense, therefore, he says the cross does away with sin, but you cannot reasonably speak of, of making God propitious when God is already so propitious that he sends his son. Well, that view convinced very many people. It convinced many people. The first major rebuttal, there were some minor ones, came in 1955 in Westminster Theological Journal in an essay written by Roger Nicole, a 40-page journal which has occasionally been reprinted. But the most important response came in a book by Leon Morris called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, which should be on every minister's bookshelf. You may not like what it says here and there. It is still an exceedingly important book on the atonement. You see, what Dodd has to do, which is one of the points that Morris picks up on, what Dodd has to do is still explain away all these passages that talk about the wrath of God. See, in the logic of the case, it, it makes sense. God does love us so much he sends his son. We don't propitiate God. 
But on the other hand, you have all of these passages, not least in Romans, in the two chapters immediately preceding, that are full of the wrath of God. So what do you do with that? What Dodd does with that is say that in the light of the logic of God's love for us, you must assume that God's wrath is a kind of metaphorical way of talking about the inevitable outworking of His justice. It's not a personal thing. It's not, in any sense, anger or bad temper. It's, um, it, it's an inevitable outworking of, of justice. He takes his hands off us. That's what chapter 1 says, isn't it? He, he, he gives up on us, as it were, and then lets nature take its course. And thus, wrath becomes depersonalized. Now, one of the things that Leon Morris does, besides showing that Hillesterion in its usages in the Old Testament, not always, but not infrequently, refers to the top of the Ark of the Covenant on which blood was shed at Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. In addition to that, he points out how often this word is found in connection with wrath in both the Old and the New Testament scriptures, not least here. Some better understanding of wrath, therefore, has to surface. This will not do to make God's wrath so impersonal. It's very difficult to make Revelation 14 sound impersonal, or those judgments in the Old Testament that come upon Jerusalem or Babylon, or God help us on the covenant people sound impersonal. But does not this mean then that, that, that God somehow is um, both the subject and the object of propitiation? That is to say, He is the one that provides the propitiating sacrifice because He loves us, and yet He is the one whose wrath is propitiated. Thus, unlike paganism, in which human beings are the subject, we offer the propitiating sacrifice to Hermes, and the god or gods receive the action in the Christian way, then, then God is both the subject and the object. Now, this has kicked off another whole round of discussion. So, Professor C.F.D. Mole and Professor James D.G. Dunn and many others have argued that that is logically incoherent. How can you speak of God, then, being both the subject and the object of what removes His wrath? If He's so wrathful, then how can He be so loving as to provide something to remove His wrath? He can't be all that wrathful if He's loving enough to give us something to remove the wrath. Do you see? Part of the problem here, it seems to me, is in generating merely human analogies to the wrath of God. It is important at some point to recognize that our language of God, in very large part, is analogical. And, and one must discover where the parallels work and where they don't. Usually, when I'm angry, I'm not feeling particularly loving. But on the other hand, the closest analogy that I can come to in my own petty life is with respect to my kids. There is a sense in which I love them even when I like to wring their necks, <laughs> you see. And I think I'm deeply committed to loving them no matter what they do. But that doesn't stop me, nevertheless, from sometimes coming down upon them in wrath. If I'm a good daddy, I come upon them with wrath in principle rather than merely out of bad temper. But that just shows, if that there should be any question at all, merely shows that I'm not all that good a daddy all the time. The fact of the matter is that wrath 
is not an intrinsic attribute of God. His holiness is. The confrontation of God's holiness with our sin guarantees wrath. But love is an intrinsic attribute of God. So this God who must be wrathful in the light of our sin is nevertheless loving because he's that kind of God. Now here too we must give some careful thought to what we're saying. Picture Charles and Susan walking along a beach at the end of uh, their four-year course at some Christian college or pagan college, it won't make any difference. <laughs> there is a gorgeous sunset in the background and the pressure is off them, they're finished their exams and he takes her hand and they kick off their sandals and he turns to her and he says, uh, uh, Charles says to Susan, Susan, I love you. I really do. What does he mean? Well, he could mean a lot of things. He may mean no more than that he feels like testosterone on legs and wants to go to bed with her. He may mean no more than that. That's the truth. But if he has some modicum of decency in him, let alone Christian integrity, then the least that he means is, you're wonderful in my eyes. I mean, your smile, it lights up my day. Poleaxes me from 40 yards. The scent of your hair, your personality. I love your sense of humor. Even that silly little giggle, I mean, it really grabs me. And then your intelligence, your wit. I love the conversation. I love the way you handle people. Oh, Susan, I love you. Isn't that what he means? Something like that. He does not mean, Susan, quite frankly, you have the most amazingly bulbous nose. Your halitosis would scare off a herd of rampaging elephants. Your sense of humor is so grotesque, I'm embarrassed to be anywhere near you, but I love you! He doesn't mean that. Now God says, I love you. What does he mean? Does he mean, you people are so wonderful, I can't imagine heaven without you. <laughs> the brilliance of your personality, your wit, oh, I know you've got a few sins, we'll look after those. But basically, you're so, you're so cool, made in my image, that I'm going to be lonely for all eternity unless you just say yes. It just isn't anywhere near the God of the Bible. You see, the fact of the matter is that what is so wonderful about the love of God is that in the last analysis, it is not contingent upon the loveliness of what is loved. So when we talk about love and wrath, we must understand the distinctions between our love and wrath and God's love and wrath. God's wrath is the inevitable result of his holiness when it confronts sin. And God help us, we are a sinful people. He must be wrathful toward us. 
But if God loves some sinful men and women so as to save them, it is not a function of their goodness or beauty or attractiveness, but of his nature. God is love. This Hilasmos Hilastadion word group is found only four times in the New Testament. One of them is in 1 John 4, where the text explicitly relates it to the fact that God is love. Far from being ashamed, therefore, of this apparently contradictory theme that God could be both the subject and the object of propitiation, we insist rather that it is the very heart of the gospel. It is the glory of the gospel. Now, we need to press just a little farther to understand this aright. Some have objected that this is not a morally coherent vision. How can A be just in releasing B by condemning C? That is often raised. And in fact, sometimes the very illustrations we use compound the problem. We picture a, just, a, a judge, for example, who has a criminal before him, and he condemns him. Or maybe he, there are ten criminals before him, and, and three of them he selects, and he pays their fine, and they're free to go. That's his choice, and he does it, and they're free to go. He pays their fine. Or, to get a third party, he insists that somebody else pays their fine. How does that express justice? Now, it is very important to think this one through. And here there are two analogies that may be of some help. Picture a woman who is married to her husband for 23 years. And then he sleeps around. He does all kinds of horrible things. And she finds out about it. He is confronted. He really is repentant, so far as she can see. And she agrees in due course to take him back in. And he really does abandon these awful ways. And the marriage holds together. Who pays the price? Oh, there's a sense in which uh, they both pay a price, and there, there, there's a sense in which uh, his conscience may uh, grab him all the days of his life. But who really pays the deep price here? It's the woman. She absorbs his guilt. All the silence that she must still entertain, the times when, when she would like to throw it back in his face, and she knows she mustn't, and she absorbs it all for the sake of the marriage. Now, on some configurations, including the epistle of the Hebrews, then you do have this pattern of the father presenting the son as the mediating sacrifice who removes the wrath of God. Yes, that's true. But at the same time, both Hebrews and Paul insist that there is another way of configuring all of this. Thus, you only have to wait till chapter 5 before you read 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Now, it is important to focus in on the us and affirm definite atonement, but it is still more important to examine the reflective pronouns. Look again. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is only coherent if Christ and God are in some sense one. Otherwise it is rubbish of the very first water. Do you see? But we go further. If then someone says, which was objected to me just a short while ago when I was trying to explain the atonement to some people, if we then say, well, if that woman who has been done dirt by her husband is prepared to absorb things without anybody paying for it, apart from just by absorbing it, why doesn't God just absorb it? Here it is important to reflect on another point where our models break down. You see, in the case of the judge, there is a law under which the judge operates. It is the law that he administers, but he is under the law. He is not bigger than the law. He may represent the law in certain respects, but he is under the law himself. This law governs both himself and those accused. But God is not under the law. That is why the offense that is against him elicits his wrath. A judge is not supposed to be angry. A judge in our courts is supposed to be a neutral arbiter administering an external code that is above him. What has been offended in our criminal justice system is the law or the state, or society. But what has been offended in divine terms is God. So he is interested in atonement not only in absorbing what we deserve by the death of his son, but by demonstrating his public justice. He is the law. That is the point. Do you see the text? God presented him as a propitiation in his blood. So as to be just, would we have a better view of God if he came to certain sinners and said, well, frankly, I don't really give a rip what you do, you know. I don't, I don't, I don't really care. I'll forgive some, I won't forgive others. I, I, don't, I mean, you're just people. Would that make God better? Would it make him more holy? Would he be more admirable if he dismissed Paul Pot and Mother Teresa and you and me all in the same breath? Oh, no. Not after two and a half chapters of wrath. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Still the same root to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just 
and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And that brings me to the last of these four points. Here we find also the demonstration of the righteousness of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. The righteousness, the demonstration of the righteousness of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Here we have stated for us the purpose of God setting forth his son as the propitiation of God's wrath. Now let me tell you frankly that these words in 25b and 26 have also been heavily disputed in recent years. If you don't follow this, don't worry about it. But some of you I know are wrestling with these questions and it's worth my while taking the time to be just a bit more technical for a few moments. They could be rendered and the majority of contemporary commentators do now render them. They could be rendered in order to demonstrate God's righteousness through his forgiving of sins committed before in the time of his forbearance. Let me repeat. In order to demonstrate God's righteousness through his forgiving of sins committed before in the time of his forbearance. In this view, God's righteousness means God's saving, covenantal faithfulness. That is the way Tom Wright takes it. We'll come to that one again tomorrow. But I don't think that's correct. I think that the way it must be rendered is closer to this. In order to demonstrate that God is just, acting in accordance with his own character, which was necessary because he had passed over sins committed before in the time of his forbearance. And that's the older view. I am persuaded it's the right view. On this view, the text explains something of what is called the internal mechanism of the atonement. That is, it explains the necessity of Christ's propitiating work in terms of, what's God's, of what God's holy character requires. One reason why it is correct, it seems to me, is in the phrase that the NIV renders, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Literally, he had passed over them. The first view demands that this be rendered the forgiveness of sins committed beforehand. But I don't think that's what it is at stake. It's the sins committed beforehand. That is to say, all those sins that had been committed beforehand, before the coming of Christ, all those sins that had committed, been committed in the Old Testament, there was a sense in which some temporal judgments were administered, hence, for example, the exile. There was a sense in which they were handled proleptically by the sacrifices that were imposed by the Old Covenant. But they hadn't finally met the satisfaction of God. How could they? Both Paul and Hebrews insist that there is finally no forgiveness of sins by shedding a goat's blood. Do you see? And thus all these sins had not yet been handled. That is the point. It explains the internal necessity for the atonement. So he does this then because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. They had not yet finally been handled. But now they're handled. They're handled by one who bears in his own body on the tree the sins of all of God's people from both testaments, from both covenantal structures, across the whole sweep of redemptive history. 
And God arranges it in such a way as to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And finally, <clears throat> this last point I will make brief. We are believers in the cross of Christ, verses 27 to 31. We are believers in the cross of Christ. When you read these closing verses, you discover again and again and again the repetition of this word faith. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Do you see? Now there is a tremendous emphasis on faith as that which apprehends this gift. Now, it seems to me that structurally, here I will merely throw out something for you to go and meditate upon when you can't get to sleep tonight in a strange bed. <laughs> here it seems to me that this passage becomes all the clearer when you see that it is divided up into three parts which are then expanded upon in chapter 4. The parallels are so close I find them compelling. 327 finds its parallel in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 327, where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what? Nomos. On what nomos is this boasting excluded? Now, on the nomos of works? or the nomos of faith. Now clearly at some level in English translation you have to render that nomos by principle or some word like it, which is what our English versions do. In the context, nomos in English gloss means something like principle. But inevitably to any first century reader it has overtones of Torah in any case. You cannot escape it. At one level, Paul is contrasting the principles of faith and works, but Paul connects the mosaic nomos to work so often in chapter 2, in verses 6 to 16, chapter 3, verse 20, and so on, that it is hard to avoid this allusion uh, to works and nomos. Thus, while Paul asks what rule or principle or system of demands excludes boasting, the language would naturally call forth to mind the Namos, the Torah. Paul then contrasts the modifiers. It is not through the Namos, Torah, of works that boasting is excluded. It is through the Namos, the rule of faith. That is, the ordinance or demand from God for faith that God requires is that which receives justification. And if you want proof that it has always been so, Paul then expands the point in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Do you see? What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. The boasting theme is still there, do you see? But not before God. Then the second connection, chapter 328, must be linked to chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. 
Here the point is that sola fide is required to preserve sola gratia. You cannot have one without the other. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Then down in chapter 4, verses 3 to 8, that point is expanded upon at great length. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness, and so forth, with a further example from David. And finally, verses 29 to 30 find their parallel in chapter 4, verses 9 and following. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? No narrow tribal connection here, not even the narrowness of the Old Covenant. No, 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 no. There is only one God. One of the entailments of monotheism is mission. There is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. And that, after all, goes back, does it not, to what was promised under the Abrahamic Covenant. And that brings us then to chapter 4, verses 9 and following. The point then is that the faith described in these verses is not to be confused with the modern subjective notions of faith. Rather, faith is not a work, nor is it a subjective feeling of personal religious preference. It is that gift of God by which we apprehend the truth, and the truth finally is Jesus Christ and his cross work on our behalf. Paul ends the paragraph with one final observation. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Is that what we're doing? Not at all, he says. Rather, we uphold the law. Now, if you understand law to mean primarily lex, that is, law as demand, law as legal prescription, then you will be likely to read this, we uphold the law by seeing sinners so converted that they do good, which is what the law demands. That may be true, but it's got nothing to do with this text. For law in Paul does not primarily mean lex, it is a shorthand for the law covenant. And his whole point earlier was that the law and the prophets bear witness to Jesus. We are upholding the intentionality of the law, the purpose of the law, the givenness of the law, the purpose of the law within the framework of redemptive history, precisely by closing with Christ by faith. That is the direction in which the law points. That was the point of chapter 3, verse 21. Thus, how does the faith establish the law? Not in this context, by condemning sinners and preparing the way for the gospel, though that is taught in Galatians and in Romans 3.19. Rather, here, the most likely view in my understanding of the text is that we estab faith establishes the law from the fact that the law's demands are themselves prophetic. They point to Christ. All its condemnations are now erased and the picture of the ultimate sacrifice, the hilasterion par excellence, has now arrived, and all of, the of, of all of the law's prophetic demands have been met by Christ Jesus. 
Let us pray. In some ways, merciful God, this is such an elementary review of things that Christians have understood for 2,000 years. Help us, merciful Father, never ever to dull of hearing them, but to see rather their blessed interconnections with all of your most holy word, to see above all that your gracious gift of your Son, the hilasterion that you placarded before the whole universe, simultaneously announces your justice and gains for us justification. We, the guilty, are acquitted. More, we are declared just. Not because we are, but because one died for us, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Grant, Lord God, that our whole heart's cry may be one of obedient, reverent worship, thanksgiving that bursts the bounds of decorum as we exult in the grace that has freed us from our sin and its penalty and the curse that it has attracted. O oh Lord God, have mercy upon us and grant us the unction to articulate and proclaim this gospel with holy boldness for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of the purposes of a discussion is to clarify, and one of the purposes of a discussion is to give people who don't agree a chance to challenge. When Abraham Lincoln was presented with a situation and he made a decision and somebody said, what about the other side? And Lincoln said, there is no other side. <laughs> I think it's warm. But I also think the subject was covered pretty well. We're going to dis dismiss with the discussion tonight. And if you have any questions of Grow tonight, please keep them for tomorrow morning so you can go home and rest and be totally refreshed for the morrow. We're going to